can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Joshua chapter 22. That's where we're going to be at this morning, Joshua chapter 22. And it's really, really great to be back together again this morning, opening God's Word. And uh, I've, uh, I've entitled this message this morning, Fighting for Unity. And uh, there's some intentional irony in this title. It's kind of like saying that we're going to go to war to secure peace. Or maybe, let me make this a little more relevant, um, it's kind of like parents yelling at your kids to be quiet. It, it seems contradictory, but sometimes it's necessary. And all the parents said, amen, right? And the truth is, is that we must be a people who are actively fighting for unity if we are going to be experiencing unity. Why is that the case? Well, because if we do not fight for unity, we will not enjoy the rest that God intends for us to know and enjoy as the people of God. I mean, together, experientially, relationally. I mean, have you ever lived in a, in a house or had a relationship that was filled with unresolved tension, where, where people are divided? where everything ends up in a disagreement, where there is no alignment, no agreement, especially on the most fundamental things. I mean, it's, it's frustrating, it's demoralizing, it's exhausting. But, but oh, the opposite, right? When a, a marriage or a relationship or a home is filled, or a community for that matter, or a church, When they fight for unity around the things that matter most, there is a kind of, of rest, a kind of peace that is known and enjoyed. And if we are willing to fight for true unity, we get to continue to experience that kind of rest and peace. Israel has been promised rest. Rest from all of their enemies, rest in a land that they could call home, rest because they are together with the people of God, worshiping the one true and living God, living in peace with Him and peace with one another. But in order for them to continue to enjoy this rest in the temporary sense, this rest must be fought for, this unity must be fought for. And that's what we see as we look at Joshua chapter 22. But let me kind of frame where we've been in the book of Joshua because it's going to help to situate us a little bit and to give us a little bit of helpful context as we look at the text today. We're kind of rounding the bend in the book of Joshua. There's only a few chapters left. So here's where we've been, okay? We started off in the first four chapters of the book of Joshua. The people of God are entering into the land. Then from chapters 5 through 9... The people of God are taking the land. They're conquering the land. Then, in chapters 10 all the way through 21, we see the land being divided up amongst the people of God, so they're possessing the land. And here, in chapters 22 through 24, we see the charge for the people of God to remain in the land. And what happens here is fascinating. In each chapter remaining, Joshua is going to rally together. He's going to gather together a group of people. 
He's going to assemble uh, different groups together, and he's essentially going to give them all the same kind of charge, and the charge is a charge to be unified in something very specific, in something very important. Here it is. Listen, this is, this is it. They are to be unified in their faithfulness to God. That's what unifies the people of God. And so Joshua is going to charge the people of God to be faithful to him. And what unfolds in chapter 22 is this charge to be faithful, but then then this really bizarre account, this bizarre narrative that, spoiler alert, almost ends up in a civil war. It's the opposite of unity. But through this account, we see God's people fighting for unity, and we are instructed on how we must do the same. So as we look at God's word this morning... Here's what I want you to see. If we're going to fight for unity, we must first fight to promote the priority of devotion. We must fight to promote the priority of devotion. Verse 1, you can look at it with me. It says, at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. I want you to kind of put yourself into the situation for a moment. The people of God have been fighting together. They've been going to war. They've been conquering the land. And after all they had gone through together, the time had now come for the tribes to return to their inheritance and begin to settle their lives in the land. So Joshua here in chapter 1, he he gathers these two and a half tribes together. These were the tribes who were allotted land on the east side of the Jordan, if you remember. That is outside the official boundaries of the land of Canaan. They were spoken of all the way back in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Maybe you remember it there. These two and a half tribes, they they had been given this land by Moses himself, but there was a requirement placed upon them if they were to inhabit that possession, that inheritance, and enjoy that land. Here's what that requirement was. They must go into the rest of the land of Canaan and conquer the rest of the land of Canaan so that their brothers, their, their fellow kinsmen, can receive their inheritance. So last week, Rowan used the analogy of moving into a home, so let me press that a, a little bit deeper. It's like, it's like Moses had given homes to a certain amount of the people already, and then Joshua comes along and he says, okay, you've got your homes, but we don't have our homes, so I'll tell you what, you go help us get our homes, and then you get to enjoy your home. We all get to go home together. And that's where they are. The time has come for them to finally get to go home. So Joshua is releasing these men from military service. This is an honorable discharge. 
And what we see is that they have prioritized devotion to the Lord, devotion to, to Joshua, and they were seeking to uphold a faithfulness to the Lord. And so Joshua does two things that are very instructive for us. First, we see him commend faithfulness. He commends faithfulness in these men. He simply commends their obedience to the Lord. And I just want you to consider what they had done. Some scholars believe, we don't know for sure, some scholars believe that they had been at war fighting this conquest and these battles for seven years. For seven years, these men had left their families behind. They, they had not had seven years to watch their children grow up or to cultivate their relationship with their spouse. They had been fighting, and now finally they get to go home. But over those seven years, can you imagine the, the friendships and the bonds and the intimacy that would be established between these brothers in arms? They've been faithful to God. They had obeyed God. Verse 3 tells us they had not forsaken their brothers. I love this. Listen, devotion to the Lord is often seen in devotion to one another. This is such an amazing picture of Christian faithfulness. Devotion to God, devotion to his word, devotion to his servants, and devotion to each other. That is such a well-rounded picture of what it means to be somebody who's truly devoted to God. The New Testament affirms this all the time, by the way. Galatians 6.1, for example, says that the way we fulfill the law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens. You see that? Devotion to God is often manifested primarily in devotion to other people, especially those in need. And that's worthy of commendation in God's mind. You see, we need to be a people who are actively commending faithfulness to God wherever we see it, all around us. And, and by the way, I was thinking about this this past week. Um, Sarah and I and our family, we had, a, we had a, an opportunity to spend some time with um, one of the other elders in our church um, and their family, Philip and Shauna Beach, uh, Matthew, TJ, and Joseph. They were over at our place, and, and, um, and it, just, it just stirred my heart in so many ways. Um, the last time I commended somebody, a bunch of people got upset because they thought that Mark was leaving, and I wasn't clear about that at the gates. But, but I need to be clear out the gates. I, I want to commend the beaches to you because they are leaving. And not just because they're leaving. They should be commended either way. Uh, they're moving to Florida, so we don't feel that bad for them. In all seriousness, Philip has, has got a job there, and, and their family is going to be moving there at the end of September, but we had this chance to sit and, and enjoy a meal together, and, and, and I was reflecting in my mind as I sat there, and I looked at them, and, and I looked at their kids. I mean, we've, they came the Sunday we launched our church, and I have watched the Lord use them in, in a variety of ways, some ways that many of you have seen publicly, some ways in private and behind closed doors that none of you will ever know about. I have watched them grow in this church. I've watched God use them in this church. I've watched them be a blessing to so many in this church. And so I, I just, my heart is overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness. And it's a joy for me to be able to say, hey, look at them. You, you have done such an incredible job serving the Lord and serving the church here. You've been so devoted to God and to his people in such a prayer way, and you are worthy of being commended for that. And, and it made me think back. I sat on my porch this morning. I was thinking about them, and I was thinking about it, just the Lord is stirring my heart 
in relation to this church and thinking about how God has brought so many people over the years. Listen, some of you have been here since the very beginning, from before this church was even a church. And you have served the Lord so faithfully. You have given of yourselves so sacrificially. It has been a joy to, to watch you serve the Lord. It's been a joy to serve the Lord with you. Some of you have, have been jumping on, um, you know, jumped on at different parts of this journey, and I've watched you jump in and serve the Lord and be a part of what God is doing here, and it's so awesome to watch the people of God be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to commend you for your faithfulness to God. Not only does Joshua commend faithfulness. Look at what he does. Secondly, he commands faithfulness. He's not intent to just commend it. Look at what he says in verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment of the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them, and he, he sent them away, and they went to their tents. In verses 7 through 9, he tells them to go back and to share, share the blessings, the riches that they have accumulated with all of those back home. And I love this because Joshua's words in verse 5 are passionate. You can almost hear the passion flowing from his voice through the pen on paper right in front of us. He is so passionate about his own devotion to the Lord, and he's so passionate that the people of God will remain devoted to the Lord. He commends what they've already done, but he calls them to keep being faithful. And the words here, especially in verse 5, they capture really the heart of this chapter's message about faithfulness and loyalty to God, but they capture really the heartbeat of all of Scripture for God's people. I mean, these words sound so familiar, right? It's because this isn't the first time we've read them. They're all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. They're all the way in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the great Shema. The, the instruction parents were supposed to give to their children sounds exactly like this. They're already the very first chapter of the book of Joshua, and we see them throughout the pages of Scripture, both old and new, this calling, this commanding to be devoted to the Lord, faithfulness to Him. This exhortation is really the heartbeat and the very essence of the first and great, greatest commandment, to love God passionately with every fiber of your being. And the verbs here in verse 5, they give us this comprehensive picture of what a proper relationship to God is supposed to include. Just listen to them again. Let me read. To love God, to walk in all His ways, to obey His commands, to cling to Him, and to serve Him. This is what it means to be devoted to God. And these are to be done, listen, not as a matter of external conformity, but with all your heart and your soul. This is what God commands us, church. And he has been faithful to us, amen? Let us therefore strive to be faithful to him. Unity is the result of our priority of devotion. That's where unity is forged when, when we are together committed and devoted to the Lord. 
for his glory, for his purposes, that's where we forge true and deep unity as the people of God. Next, if we're going to fight for unity, we must fight to protect the purity of worship. Now we get really into the meat of this passage, and, and this, is, this is the bizarre part of the passage that I was talking about. They're sent home, and these faithful men do something very, very strange. Look at verse 10. It says, And they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, and the people of Reuben, and the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Don't you love that language? I mean, they, they go there, and the first thing they do is they build this huge altar. And here's why this is confusing, because the whole mission of conquest was about tearing down altars, not building them. And God had told them that there was only supposed to be one altar in one place, and that place was Jerusalem, and that, that altar would be in the tabernacle. This was not unclear. Just some of you are like, well, did they know about this? Like, it was, maybe they're just confu- maybe they forgot. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1 through 5, listen to these words. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But, listen to verse 5, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. Tear down all the altars, eradicate all false worship out of this land, build one altar in Jerusalem, one place where I will be worshipped. Why, why was this so necessary? One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, he says it like this, the restriction of sacrifice to one sanctuary was preventative theology, intended to preserve the purity of worship Then he says this, to oversimplify, it meant one altar, one faith, one people. Why? Because one God. So what do these guys do? They get released from military service, from conquering the land, from destroying all the altars, and they go and they build the biggest altar they can possibly build. It is confusing at best, listen, and it is rank apostasy at worst. You see what the concern is here? And I want you to see this. The people of God in Canaan, they respond righteously. Look at verse 11 and 12. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. They're ready to go to war. You're like, isn't this a bit of an overreaction? 
Well, we'll drop down for a second to verse 22. Listen to what the, the, the two and a half tribes say when they're, a little later when they're confronted with this. The, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us this day. You see what they say? They say, like, if we're doing something sinful and wrong, if we're violating what God has commanded in regards to his worship, put us to death. We deserve to be put to death. The right reaction will be for you to come out against us in war, they say. So what exactly can we learn from this? A couple things I want to draw out for you. First is this, we must be willing to confront sin. That's a very obvious lesson here. We must be willing to confront sin. Don't you see how, how willing they were to go after what they knew was so clearly against the Lord and distorted not only the worship of God, but the very image of God? Being willing to confront sin is what it actually means in one sense to be faithful to God and faithful to others. Some people, they read this account and they're very put off by this willingness to go to war. And some some commentators have said, like, this is a mistake. They're, 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 They're dealing with an issue that's a lot more trivial than they realize it is. But I just want to encourage you and rebut that. This is not trivial in the least This is ultimately, listen, this is all about allegiance to God and the purity of worship that is offered to him. This is no overreaction. This is not immaturity on the part of the people of God who are wanting to wage war against this act. It is a sign of health that Israel, listen, this is important, it's a sign of health that Israel is so stirred by even the appearance of unfaithfulness. Do you realize that one of the greatest signs of spiritual health in your life is when you are so stirred up about even the possibility of sin being present in your life? That is one of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity. One of the greatest signs of spiritual immaturity, listen, is when you're unwilling or uncaring to look at the sin in your own life or to even recognize that there is sin there. You can overlook it. It's not a big deal. It is a dangerous thing when we're unwilling to confront sin in our own lives or the lives of others. It is a dangerous thing. Listen, because wherever sin remains, more pain is guaranteed. And God's name is tarnished. It is crucial that our allegiance to God, here's what we learn from this, it's crucial that our allegiance to God always be above our allegiance even to our brothers. Did you hear me? I mean, can you imagine the Israelites in, in this situation? How could we go to war against these guys? We were in the trenches together for years and years. We did life together. We had meals with Mordecai. We laughed with Levi. I saved Samuel. Those are the most common Jewish names I could think of. But you see, our faithfulness to God always, listen, our faithfulness to God always trumps our faithfulness to anyone else. And if we're truly being faithful to somebody else, listen to what Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know what that means? 
Your friends, the people who truly love you, are the ones who are willing to say the hard things to you. Not the ones who are just content to let you live in your sin. They don't love you that much. If they're willing to overlook your sin, to never talk about your sin, they don't love you that much. They don't care about you. They don't care about your relationship with God. They don't care about the holiness of God. They care about themselves because it's hard. Listen, it's hard to confront people in sin. It is costly. It could cost you relationships. It could cost you comfort and ease. The New Testament has a whole process for this, Matthew chapter 18, where we are called to go to our brothers who are in sin. We're called to go to them, to to bring their sin to light and and hope and pray that they listen. And if they don't, then then we ramp it up. We bring more people and more people to escalate the seriousness of sin and the impact that it has on the community of faith and the glory of God. You see, the New Testament cares deeply about these same things. And by the way, no one is off limits. No one is off limits because our allegiance is first to God. You remember the Apostle Paul in Galatians? You know what he said? This is so instructive. He said, he said, if anyone else comes to you, if if I or an angel from heaven come to you and preach a different gospel, let them be what? Accursed. It's pretty serious. Paul's like, look, if I come to you and I say something that is not the gospel, well, not only let me be rebuked, let me be accursed. And then Paul actually, he, he demonstrates this in his relationship with Peter. You can read about it in Galatians chapter 2. You know, Peter is showing partiality to Jewish believers in the early church, and he's minimizing the significance of the gospel. He's not living out the gospel towards the Gentiles the same way he's living it out towards the Jews. And he's an absolute hypocrite in this context. And Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Like, didn't he know who Peter was? This is Peter. Yeah, he knew who Peter was. But you want to know who his allegiance was to first? It's to God. To God. You see, unless you love Jesus, listen, more than father, mother, sister, or brother, you cannot be his disciple. You know, I, can't, I can't say that to my mom. I, I could never say that to my, my brother. I can't say that to my child. It requires an allegiance to God above every other allegiance. It must be greater than any other allegiance, or you cannot be his disciple. Sp- spouses, listen. If you love your spouse more than you love God, you will do damage to your spouse and to your marriage. Parents, listen to me. If you love your children more than you love God, you will do damage to your children without even realizing it. I I love this church. I hope you love this church too. But listen, if you love this church more than you love God, you're going to do damage to this church. This community and any healthy community, whether it's your marriage or your family, but particularly this church community, it's the result, listen, of a greater affection and a greater allegiance to God. That is how you get loving, faithful communities. When you love God first and most, you love everyone else best and right. And that's how you get true unity. 
when we're willing to confront and, and be confronted, to tell the truth, even when it hurts, because we're willing to fight to protect the purity of worship. We believe God's glory, God's honor, God's praise is the priority. Let me just hasten to add this qualification. That does not mean we go looking for a fight. It doesn't mean that every sin is equally as bad as another sin. It doesn't mean that we elevate every doctrine or every truth to the level of primary importance. Be careful what hills you die on. You may wind up in a church of one. And I, I, can, just, I can promise you this, like especially when it comes to doctrine and beliefs and truth, some of us are like, we're so rabid, we love the truth so much, we want to fight about every single truth, and we want to be right about every single truth, and we, we miss priority, we, we, take prim- we take secondary or tertiary doctrines, and we, we make them primary, and what we do in our zeal for the truth is we hurt people and don't help people, and we do damage to the body of Christ. I can promise you this, I I bet if we sat down for coffee, you and I, maybe even over a couple coffees, it would maybe take that much, but I bet you would only take one. I bet you that I don't agree with any of you on everything. And and the same goes for me, obviously. We are all in process. Not everything in God's word is equally as clear and equally important for us to agree upon. Be careful how you apply this passage. And, and by the way, be instructed on how they go about this process. There's this willingness to confront sin, but notice this. Secondly, be eager to clarify sin. Or confess when you're confronted. It's so wise what they do here in verse 13 and following. Then the people of Israel, they, they sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. They sent a delegation that they want to find out the truth. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? You see how they're thinking this through. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? Go back to the book of Numbers for that one. Their rebellion against God caused a a plague that killed 24,000 people. By the way, a plague that... Uh, Phineas here, the same priest, ended. From Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves. I mean, it's still fresh. Don't you remember? And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. You see what they're saying here? Your sin is going to impact us as well. He drives it even deeper. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. He's making it as easy as possible for them to repent. Don't you love that? Like, if there's a problem with your land, if you're, if you're worried about something, come on, come on over, we'll give you some of our land. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, let me talk about being fresh. 
The son of Zerah brake faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Like you, you're bringing the wrath of God upon all of us. Your sin is not as personal as you think it is. Your sin, even when it's hidden, listen, your sin impacts the people who are close to you in your home, your relationships, and they impact the body of Christ. They send this delegate to ask what they're doing. Yeah, they bring some assumptions, but they are informed assumptions. And they know what God has done in the past with their false worship, and so they're very, very scared, so to speak. And they give them an opportunity now to clarify. They want clarity. They, they, they hope that there's clarity coming. And look at verse 21. This is so good. Um, some of us just need to take this point out here today. They confront the sin, listen, and then they listen. Some of us are, are good at assuming and confronting, but we're not very good at listening. In our zeal for the truth, we, we can end up doing more damage than good but they listen here and listen to this explanation. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us this day for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. It's so good. We're with you. We, we agree. We don't want to rebel against God. We love God. I mean, how often do we assume the worst of people and not believe the best? Sometimes we just need to ask and give people an opportunity to explain, and we need to show grace and patience and be willing to listen and hear. This wasn't an act of rebellion. This was an attempt to keep them faithful. 
They were going to use the altar. It was a reminder, a constant reminder. And the, and the fear, don't you love this? Their fear is for their kids. You have to understand, the Jordan Valley is like this massive trench. It's almost like, it's not quite the Grand Canyon, but that's probably what it felt like back then. It's this huge chasm, geographically. There's no bridges. And one day down the road, when your kids and our kids don't know the cost that went into securing the land and fighting together and worshiping the Lord together, when they don't know any of that by experience, maybe your kids will come to our kids and they'll see us outside of the boundary of the promised land and they'll say, who are you? You're not the people of God. We don't want that. We want to be unified in our worship of God. We want, we want to remember who we are, and we want our kids to know who they are and who their God is. This altar is a reminder to us and to our kids to be faithful to Yahweh God. Oh, that we would worry like this. This is godly anxiety. Godly worry. Oh, that our kids would grow up to know the Lord. Oh, that the people of God would be unified in their love for God and their worship of God. I mean, parents, like, be instructed by this. Isn't this so great? This is, this is the embodiment and the living out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Oh, oh, that we would teach our kids by instruction, by, by creative means to be faithful to God, that we would stick into their hearts the truth of the gospel and call them to live for God and for God alone. And parents, I just want to encourage you. I, I don't know where you're at when you're disciples of your kids. I don't know, you know, if it's been a rough season or a good season. I don't know, you know, if you feel like a failure, but can I just, look, wherever you've been, listen, clean slate today. Today, start afresh. Get after the task. If, you, if you're going strong in this, keep going. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more important. That's what you see here. Your greatest job is to raise a generation of kids who know and love the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Kids, listen, some of you here today, you're living in Christian homes, and you are blessed beyond measure. You don't even realize how much of a blessing it is to grow up with parents who love the Lord and are doing their best to instruct you in the ways of the Lord. And you need to know, kids, look at me, kids, all you kids, look right here, right here. I see your faces, and I know your parents, most of you. And I know how hard your parents are working to point you to Jesus. And here's what I want you to hear today. The reason your parents are doing that is because your faith must be your own and not your parents. Because you have to choose, listen, you have to choose to follow Jesus for yourself. You have to choose. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for your sins. You must believe that you were worthy of being punished for your sin, but that God loved you so much. He came to rescue you. He died in your place and he rose from the grave, which means this, listen, it means he's stronger than sin and death. It means he's alive and he can give you true life. And so let me add my voice to the voice of your parents and, and hear me say this, listen, out of love for you, out of God's love for you, Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus for yourself. Today, follow Jesus. See what God will do in your life as you walk faithfully with him, your God. 
Lastly, and I promise this will be a, a very kind of quick point. You want to fight for unity? You must fight to preserve the presence of God. This account closes with a happy ending. <laughs> happy because the presence of God is among the people of God. Look at verse 30. When Phineas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know, here it is, listen, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the, the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel, and they brought back word to them, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God, and they spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Phineas speaks for the tribal committee. I love that now we know that Yahweh is in our midst. How do we know that God is with his people? When they are all worshiping God, that's how you know. God is with his people when his whole body loves the scriptures and loves Jesus and trusts him alone for salvation and seeks to follow him in everything. That's when God is with his people and that's when God's people are satisfied, blessed, and happy in him. And don't miss the significance of this passage for us, the church, the people of God today. Sin, rebellion, apostasy, they diminish the presence and power of God in our lives. Sin and, and apostasy, listen, it quenches the spirit in your life. When we don't take sin seriously, we risk grieving the spirit of God. But here's the encouragement with renewed repentance, loyalty, faith, and obedience, we can, like the Israelites, be assured that the continued presence of God in our midst is both our greatest need and our greatest blessing. Everybody is satisfied. I love how this story ends. In fact, they praise God because they fought for unity. They didn't have to fight. They praise God for causing his peace to rule amongst his people. And the eastern tribes together reaffirm their intention behind this altar. They look at the altar and declare its name, witness. For it is a witness between us that Yahweh is God. You want to know how we fight sin and how we remain faithful and how we fight to preserve the presence of God in our midst is right here. 
the unifying rally cry of the nation of Israel was Yahweh is God, not Baal, not Molech, no other false god from the land of Canaan or anywhere else on the globe. Yahweh is God. And the unifying rallying cry of the church is drawn right out of this phrase. I want you to see this. You see, we don't have an altar that that is a witness and that declares a reminder for us that Yahweh is God. We have something similar. We look to a cross of wood, which was the altar upon which God himself was killed for our sins. And the cross remains for the people of God a witness And it declares for us, this is the banner of the church. This is the rally cry of the church, isn't it, church? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what unifies us. And when we cling to that, when we believe that with all of our hearts, and when we live as if Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, listen, we will find unity as designed by God, as given by His grace, and intended to be known and enjoyed by us. Let's pray.